Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. All right. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to another uh, Facebook Live uh, author interview with Ignatius Press. We're here today with uh, Dr. Edward Sree, who has written a number of books published by Ignatius Press and many others. Uh, you may have uh, seen him on uh, EWTN or heard his, his podcast, All Things Catholic, or read any of his books, No Greater Love, A Biblical Walk Through Christ's Passion, Walking with Mary, Who Am I to Judge? He's also the host of, uh, of the uh, Cymbalon Catholic Faith Explained video series, as well as many others, and uh, a founding leader with Curtis Martin of FOCUS, the Fellowship of Catholic University Students. And currently, he is an adjunct professor at the Augustine Institute uh, out there in Colorado, which is where he lives with his family. So, uh, Dr. Sri, welcome. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. So today we'll be talking about Rethinking Mary in the New Testament, a uh, book that, was, that we uh, published here not too long ago. Um, so if you don't mind, let's just uh, dive right into it. And for those watching, if you have any questions, um, drop them in the comments and we'll be happy to happy to get to them. So first, what prompted the writing of this book? Yeah, you know, uh, a lot of my academic career has been all around Mary uh, and the yeah. biblical uh, passages related to Mary. And, you know, it, it's so beautiful. So I love learning more and more about Our Lady. But in our world today, you know, we call the book Rethinking Mary in the New Testament. The reason is many people think that there's not much to Mary in the New Testament. Um, yeah. It's our Protestant brothers and sisters. I remember I was giving a talk in Kansas City, oh, 20 years ago, and they advertised it. The parish advertised the talk, and some Protestant ministers came, and they were very friendly, Baptist, Bible, you know, Christians, and but they were friendly, and they really came out to hear, you know, what is this Catholic going to say about Mary and the Bible? And and then at the end of the talk, he said, you know, I've, I've learned a lot. Thank you so much, but I, I still have some questions. So why would you give so much attention to Mary? You know, she doesn't seem to be that important. I realize, okay, there's some passages, but when you look at the sheer amount of, you know, biblical data related to Mary, there's just not that much. The Bible tells us much more about St. Paul, St. Peter. Why so much attention on Mary? Yeah. And, you know, and he said, especially the Gospel of John. Look at the Gospel of John. She only appears at Cana and then at the cross. And, you know, that's it. Yeah. And I remember thinking, well, no, great observation. But I would give, I would want to give not just a quantitative analysis. How many times is her name in the Bible? Uh, yeah. But a qualitative analysis, and you would see that, look, she appears, yes, maybe only those two times in John's gospel, but those are pivotal moments, some of those crucial moments in the gospel of John, the beginning, yeah. the launching of his public ministry, his first miracle, and then the climax at the cross. And that attitude's not just with our Protestant brothers and sisters. Uh, I think you'll find it with a lot of Catholic biblical scholars. Uh, unfortunately, there are many biblical scholars, say in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, that had what what, what could be called a minimalist view of Mary uh, in general, in terms of Marian theology, but also a minimalist view in terms of uh, how much they were willing to say scripture said something about Mary, uh, yeah. pointed to a certain doctrine. How much can you glean from scripture about the Immaculate Conception or you know Mary's spiritual maternity? And they had a they were almost like kind of a little nervous, you know, maybe kind of a embarrassed or something. I don't know what it, what it was, but but you definitely see this in the writings. And 
I, I want to challenge us to say, I think if we do really good biblical exegesis, we're really taking the best of approaches to understanding the scriptures in light of first century Jewish thought, uh, in light of Old Testament prophecies, narrative analysis on Luke and John. I, I think what we can do is see there's a lot, a lot in the Bible about Mary. And so last thing I'll say, Paul, is this in the book, what we do I have a whole chapter, for example, just on the word hail, just the word hail, unpacking how it was used in the Old Testament, how it's used by Luke, what what does this really mean? And then a whole chapter just on the words full of grace. There's so much in these words if you understand it biblically. So I think if we use good biblical exegetical tools, we will see that there's a lot that scripture tells us about Mary. And I want to glean all we can from every little data point that the New Testament offers. That's why I call it rethinking Mary, because I think a lot of people think, oh, there's not much to Mary in the New Testament, whether it's our pastor, brothers, sisters, or a number of, of even Catholic leaders may think that, Catholic scholars. I'm challenging us to rethink our approach to Mary in the New Testament. That's great. And you're bringing up an interesting point about that there's so much more to be said, to be, to be gleaned about Mary from Scripture, apart from where her name is mentioned. And a great a great example of that, I think, is is when you talk about the types, biblical types. You know, where where the Old Testament has something to tell us about Mary and the role that she plays in the life of our Lord and the life of the Church. Um, so maybe you could say a little bit about that. Um, for example, uh, the queenship, this idea of the queen mother, or um, you know, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, the New Eve. Some some of these uh, types that we find in the Old Testament looking back through through the lens of the New Testament and how those where she her name isn't mentioned, but where those, those can tell us so much about her. Oh, yeah. So in the Old Testament, God is constantly using people, events, things uh, to, to prefigure the coming of Jesus, prefigure the church, our understanding of the Christian life. And that's just how the early Christians always read the scriptures. And so you see all these prefigurings of baptism, the Eucharist and you know, like the manna prefigures the Eucharist, the Noah's Ark prefigures baptism. I mean, so there's all these great uh, connections that the early Christians made and that you find made in, by the New Testament writers themselves. And the same is true with Mary. Uh, so to give one example, you just alluded to is the idea of the queen mother. Uh, as a kid, I grew up wondering, you know, why is Mary queen? I mean, I didn't understand why we sing Hail Holy Queen and why we had the fifth glorious mystery because you know she's yeah. not the wife of Jesus she's just the mom why do we give her the, why do we have made crownings I remember as a little junior high Catholic school kid wondering that well I didn't I, I didn't know my Bible well enough <laughs> and, and if you understand the Bible in the Old Testament uh, the God gave us this role in the Davidic kingdom known as the Queen Mother uh, every every king had uh, had you know, a large harem they had many wives unfortunately so you couldn't give the queenship to say like King Solomon had 700 wives, 3,300 concubines. You couldn't give the queenship to a thousand different women. Uh, And this is true, not just in Israel. It's true in the ancient Near Eastern kingdoms around Israel. But every king had only one mother. That's why in that ancient Near Eastern world, they gave the queenship to the mom of the king. And you see this in the first and second kings. Practically every time a new king of Judah is introduced, his mom's mentioned right beside him. Not the wife. Not the daughter, not the friend, but the mom. <laughs> uh, and then this mom is mentioned as first in the royal court. 
in Second Kings 24, this royal mother is depicted with royalty. In, in Jeremiah chapter 13, for example, she has a crown on her head, she has a throne, and she's described as sharing in the royal responsibilities, the royal authority of the king caring for the flock of the people. Uh, that's Jeremiah 13. Uh, we see most of all, she has this role as serving as an advocate for the people, where people would come bring petitions to the queen mother, and then the queen mother would bring those to her royal son. Uh, that You can see that very clearly in 1 Kings chapter 2, when Bathsheba was just the wife of the King David in the previous chapter. She has to go in the royal chamber, knock on the door, kind of bow down before David. Oh, may David the king live forever. That's what happens when you're just a wife of, one, of the king. But when you become queen mother, which is what happens in 1 Kings chapter 2, David has died. Her son Solomon is now king. That makes her queen mother. She goes to that same royal chamber and she enters. And guess what happens? Solomon stands up and bows down before her. Solomon asks for a throne to be brought in for her. Now, that's much better treatment, right? Uh, and, and then she's coming in bringing a petition from one of the citizens because the citizen knows that the, the people of the kingdom know if you want to bring petitions to Solomon, you, you, you bring them through the queen mother. Uh, and then she presents the, the petition and Solomon says, ask my mother, whatever you ask for, I will grant. And so this idea of the queen mother is, is, a, is just one of many examples in the Old Testament of a prefiguring of Mary. Because we can see if the biblical pattern is the mother of the king is the queen. When we turn to the New Testament scriptures, we find Jesus is the king. He's announcing the kingdom and he has a mom. His mother's Mary. We don't need a proof text. If we're just good Bible-believing Christians, what should we conclude? If Mary's the mother of the king, she's queen mother. And if right. she's queen mother, then what do we do? That means she has the advocacy role. She's the intercessor. We bring petitions to her, and she brings them to her son. That's the pattern. This is totally, the idea of Marian intercession is totally biblical in light of the queen mother theme. Uh, the idea of Mary as, as queen mother is, is rooted in scripture. That's not just Catholic tradition. That's God's inspired word revealing to us. Mary's the queen mother. Yeah, and there's a, a great scriptural example when you talk about the Marian intercession. You bring your petitions to her and she brings them to the king. The wedding of Cana, you know, right, right, there, right there at the beginning of his ministry where she comes to him and says, they have no more wine. And, you know, he says, well, business is of mine. And so, so she, you know, don't worry, do whatever he tells you, <laughs> you know, she, right, right there from the beginning of his ministry. Yeah, yeah she, you, you see Vatican II describes at Cana, you see Mary's, you know, maternal heart, you know, and she yeah. goes and intercedes for the couple there, you know, that that, yeah. that they, they don't have to face the shame of running out of wine, which would have been very shameful in the first century Jewish world. Right. right. Great. Well, so I wonder if you could also uh, um, illuminate something for us. We don't we don't hear much in scripture about or if anything, about what Mary's life was like before the Annunciation. Um, I know, I know there, there are ways that we have some information about this, but maybe you could enlighten us a little about, about that. Yeah, that's the opening chapter of the book, yeah. in fact, is I, you know, I, I call it the original Mary. You know, what was Mary's yeah. life like before that fateful day when Gabriel appeared? Yeah. And the Bible only gives us a few little facts, you know, just a couple little details. But again, I want to glean them for all they're worth. You know, so the Bible says, for example that Mary uh, is from Nazareth in Galilee. Now that little detail is interesting, Nazareth in Galilee. Why, why is that significant? Because what, Luke has to tell you, oh, where 
where is he? Where is where is Nazareth? Because Nazareth is just not on the map. You know, it's just not yeah. known. You know, and and when Luke introduces other cities like Rome, you know, or Jerusalem, you don't have to say Rome. You know, the center of the Roman Empire. You don't have to say Jerusalem in Judea. You just everyone knows what it is. You know, it's kind of like I, I live in Denver. So if you said Denver, I don't have to say Denver, Colorado. I think most people would know where that is. Uh, but I used to live in a town called Atchison. You're like. Where is that? Well, Atchison, Kansas. And some people might even go, where's Kansas? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, you know, but, 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 but Luke is intentionally kind of saying Nazareth and Galilee because this is – no one knows anything about Nazareth. And he has to, like, explain where this is. And, and it's showing something significant that, that the, the God of the universe is going to come into the womb of a woman and nowhere in Nazareth. The God is working in this humble way and – uh, in, in a way that like you just wouldn't expect. And it's in great contrast to the scene that came right before. If you if you recall, earlier in Luke chapter one, the same angel Gabriel went and appeared to someone else, Zechariah, the priest, in the middle of the temple uh, at the sacred hour of, the, of sacrifice. So just picture that scene. You got Jerusalem. Everyone knows Jerusalem. And not just Jerusalem, but the temple, the holiest place in the world. And, and he's talking and talking to a man, an old elderly man and a priest. And God is revealing something important to him. And then he goes to nowhere Nazareth to talk to this no-name woman, Mary. No one knows who Mary is. She doesn't have a sacred job as a priest. She's just a lay woman. If you, if you had to guess which character is going to uh, be the one that's going to be most important or which character might be the most faithful, who would you guess? You'd probably guess the priest, right? But he's the one that messes up. He doesn't believe. He doubts that he, that he's going to be able to have this child, John the Baptist. His wife is too old, you know, and he's sent on this nine-month silent retreat as he's muted, you know, and for this. Whereas Mary, in nowhere Nazareth, this woman, this young woman, in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of just ordinary life, we don't even know what she's doing at the time. She's the one that becomes the mother of God. And she's the one that models faithfulness. So do you see how just one little detail, Nazareth of Galilee, is just packed with so much meaning when you understand it in light of Luke's gospel. Uh, two other little details. She's betrothed. That means not that she's engaged. Many Americans think, oh, Mary's engaged. She's not married yet. And that's not true. Mary is married to Joseph at this time. Uh, because first century betrothal was the first step in a two-stage marriage process. Husband and wife would come together, exchange vows, and they're made husband and wife that day before God. And before witnesses, they exchange vows. They are married, legally in covenant right now. They're just not living together. That's the second stage of marriage, the coming together, when the taking home, when, when Joseph would, would bring Mary into her home. That could be several weeks, several months, up to a year later. Uh, and that was the Jewish tradition, two stages. So she's a virgin, because that's what you would be. You haven't consummated your marriage until the second stage of marriage. Um, but she is legally bound at this time. And most married women, or most controlled women, were probably about 14 years old around this time so if you have any 14 year old you know picture them being the mother of god <laughs> right now <laughs> so, uh, and the last detail is she's married to a man named joseph betrothed to a man named joseph of the house of david and that's probably most interesting because of all the prophecies about a future son of david coming uh that would be the great king the messiah so those are some of the little data points we get in luke chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 yeah, and there's just so much, to, so much to be able to unpack from there. I like to say when, when you are digging in and not just reading it at face value, there's a lot there to be unpacked. Um, and speaking of unpacking, 
Um, you mentioned that in the Gospel of John, she's only mentioned the wedding of Cana and then at the foot of the cross. But then in Revelation, we have this figure um, who who has come to be understood as as representing Our Lady. I know there, I know there's been some uh, uh, controversy about that question over over, over the over the centuries. Um, but can you talk a little, a little bit about that, about, about this, this woman in Revelation and her being identified or not with uh, our Blessed Mother? Sure. So in Revelation chapter 12, St. John has this vision of this woman who's crowned with uh, uh, 12 stars on her head. She has the moon under her feet. She's resplendent uh, as the sun. Uh, so she's just decked out in royal splendor, you know, and, yeah. and she gives birth to this male child. And the male child uh, is is attacked by the dragon. So this dragon figure comes, attacks the male child. The male child is taken up to a throne. Um, he's protected, and he's going to rule all nations with a rod of iron, which is a prophecy, a messianic prophecy from Psalm two, verse nine. Uh, and then uh, Satan is cast down and defeated, and that's what the dragon is. And it tells us who is this dragon? He's the ancient serpent, the devil. You know, so it's very clear. Now, when you take a look at that story, there's three main characters. You know, you've got the woman, you've got the uh, the dragon, and you've got the the Messiah. Well, the other two main characters are very clear who they are. You know, the the dragon is is the devil. That's what Revelation twelve nine tells us explicitly. It's the ancient serpent, Satan. Uh, Revelation twelve five tells us this child was taken up to the throne and rules all nations with a rod of iron. Again, that's clear who that is. Uh, who's taken up to a throne? God, that Jesus, the Messiah. The Messianic Psalm is quoted, ruling all nations with a rod of iron from Psalm 2.9. Very clear who the male child is, is the Messiah. Who is the woman has been debated throughout the centuries and especially in modern scholarship. Um, uh, some say that the, the woman represents uh, the Old Testament people of Israel. That it's, it's a feminine figure for daughter Zion giving birth to the Messiah. And some people say that. And I think there's good grounds to see those those prophecies about Israel as the people of God giving birth to the Messiah. I think there's the, I think I, I would agree that there, I think we can see that there. And that explains a lot of the first part of revelation 12. The only problem is the, the, the vision goes on to say that this woman ends up going out into the wilderness where she's going to be protected by God. She's going to be nourished by God. Uh, and, 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 and you get the sense of like, well, in what sense could this be Israel if in the new covenant era, like, this, the, the, I, don't, I think it's too limiting to say this woman is only Israel. On the flip side, there are others that say, oh, maybe it's the church. Maybe it symbolizes the church because that's what Revelation chapter 12, verses 13 through 16 tells us about, well, yeah, God protecting us in the New Testament period and God nourishing us with the new manna, the new Eucharist, you know, the, the Eucharist now, you know? And so I think there's a lot of seeing the Christian church here. Uh, but but it'd be too limiting to say it's only the church because then you can't make sense out of like, well, how does the church give birth to the Messiah? The first part of the prophecy. You see, yeah. So there's elements of Israel, elements of the church. But I like raising the question, is there one woman in history who maybe could span both the Old Testament and the New Testament? Is there one woman in the history of the world could, could represent Old Testament Israel and New Testament uh, Christians? If there was one woman that is on the hinge of the new and the old it would be Mary. <laughs> right. And if the other two main characters, you know, in the, in the drama of revelation 12 are individuals, then shouldn't we see that this third character as an individual? Uh, yeah. I think there's great reasons for seeing revelation 12 as Mary primarily 
Uh, and then secondarily, we can see, yeah, and Mary can represent Israel and Mary can represent uh, the church. But as one of my favorite scholars on this topic, uh, Andre Foyer once asked, is it conceivable that a Christian in the first century could talk about the mother of the Messiah, write about a woman figure giving birth to the Messiah and not be thinking about Mary at all? I mean, is that even possible? And then I would add on and think about it. This isn't just any ordinary Christian. This is a Christian, you know, that John's writing to St. John, the beloved disciple who had Mary at his side all those years. Right. Yeah. You know, could he be talking about the mother of Messiah and just not be thinking about our lady at all. I, I just think that's just, it's not likely. <laughs> so uh, yeah. I think the, the view that the woman of Revelation 12 is Mary is is very strong. And we can see the symbolism to Israel and the church secondarily. Yeah. Great. Now. All of this, all of this talk about how biblical um, our understanding of Mary is, and how there's there's so much in Scripture about her that informs this Catholic devotion to her. Hmm. Maybe you can say something about the um, Protestant, let's call it, hesitation to to honor Mary. I mean, there's a, there's a respect there, and I know that some of the reformers. Um, defended, for example, her perpetual virginity and some other things about her. But especially today, Mary is one of those kind of thorny questions that that uh, that causes some friction between Catholics and Protestants. So maybe if, if there's all this scriptural basis behind it, can you say something about why there is that hesitation? Yeah, I think, you know, part of this, you know, it, it's, it, it, this, people ask me this question all the time. You go through this, you're just seeing, you know, they read this book, they're like, oh my goodness, it's just Mary everywhere in scripture. It's amazing, you know, and not everywhere, but like all these passages demonstrate Marian doctrine, Marian piety so well. How come our Protestant brothers and sisters don't see it? Well, I, I want us just to step back and be a little more empathetic and patient. Yeah. yeah because they, they, they just didn't grow up with this. And it's so antithetical to their whole worldview. So be as kind and gentle and not in your face uh, about yeah. these things. You know, try to empathize. Where are they coming from? So what, uh, it's always good to understand maybe their deepest fears. You know, their fears are that this is idolatry, right? That we're, we're, you're just supposed to worship God and God alone. And I see these Catholics going up and kneeling before these statues they're lighting candles in front of a statue and then they're singing hail holy queen what what oh my goodness we're just supposed to praise jesus and and uh, do you get where they're coming from empathize with that now again i, I think yeah. there's good answers to it but we first have to really enter into where they're coming from and and, and show that you understand saying i get it i know from an outside perspective it might just seem really strange you know but i, I do want you to know that you know this idea of marian devotion goes way back you know, into the early church. Um, and it's been expressed differently, you know, maybe not with candles and statues like we have today, but there was really devotion to Mary early on. And, and you know, and I know it, and just empathize, I know it's out of the box and all, but I do want you to know that long before Martin Luther and John Calvin and the Protestant Reformation, there was strong Marian devotion among Christians. And and it's worth at least, under, I want you to at least understand, You you may not, want to have Marian devotion in your heart, but I want you to at least understand what we're doing. Can you at least appreciate, like, instead of just jumping in and making a certain assumptions, you know, I, I want you to at least understand where we're coming from. I think that's like a better kind of tone instead of like a hostile. Now, sometimes you just need to go fight right back with that Baptist preacher, maybe, you know, uh, if you need to. But, but I think in general, people appreciate, they feel really understood. Like you're trying to understand them. 
But then you invite them to say, I, I at least want you just to understand where we're coming from. And you don't have to believe it. But I, but I don't what I don't want you to have I don't want you to have a false assumption about Catholic piety related to Mary. Yeah. I'm worried that you're not going to at least understand what we're really doing. You're going to buy into a certain stereotype that maybe you're you grew up with with your family or your congregation and all. I want you at least, you know, if you're going to reject Catholic beliefs about this, I want you to understand what you're really rejecting. Not the stereotypes yeah. out there. You see, I think that's important. Um because that's what's going on, right? If you just come in with all the scripture stuff, I, I, it might not really pierce through with with a lot of people. They have to kind of like you know, walk them in through this, and if and if they feel like even like you're just like like what I just said, like hey, you don't have to believe this, you know, you're you're free. I think it makes sense though, and that, that's why that's why I want if I, if they're if they're a little open, then I, I'm basically saying, hey, try this on for size, yeah. and I think if they try it on for size, they're gonna go, wow this fits. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I should wear this, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, so I want to get them there. Uh, and that's where, but, but that's their big fear. Uh, another big fear is, you know, and they might grant us, you know, Catholics are really good at saying things like, well, you don't, you know, we don't worship Mary. We just honor her. We venerate her. And that's a great apologetics 101 move to make. And we're, you know, we're getting better and better at, at saying that. The problem is our Protestant brothers and sisters still wonder why, why do you spend so much time with her? Yeah. I mean, it's distracting. Okay. I'll, I'll, you may not call it worship. I'll, I'll give you that, but man, it's, you should just be focused on Jesus. Why are you Catholics spending all this time with Mary? That's their fear. And what we need to do is, is be able to help them see that Mary's not a distraction from our relationship with Christ. She actually is strengthening our relationship with Jesus. That the more right. we honor her, the more we're giving praise to Jesus. So one point I often make is this, Paul, you know, is that when people, you know, ask, well, you know, why do Catholics give so much attention? And I say, look, you know, we praise God for the mountains, the moon, the sun, the stars, a beautiful sunset, right? And the Bible does this. The Bible, you know, Psalm 104 is praising God for all of his natural works of creation. Well, if we do that for a beautiful sunset, which we should, and a beautiful mountaintop, that's awesome. How much more so we should praise God for his supernatural works of creation, which is taking weak fallen human beings and transforming them with his grace and making them saints. That's worth celebrating. We should yeah. praise God for what he did with St. Paul. We just celebrated this week, right? That St. Paul was, was, uh, uh, you know, fighting against the Christians, persecuting the church. And he has a conversion and becomes a great saint. Praise be to you, Jesus, for what you did in St. Paul. Praise be to you, Jesus, for what you did in St. Augustine's. Praise be to you, Jesus, and what you did in Mother Teresa and Therese of Lisieux. We're praising God when we recognize his great saints. That's how you praise an artist, by recognizing his masterpieces. Yeah. If you go to an artist and say, hey, I don't want to have anything to do with your art. I just want a personal relationship with you. You're ignoring who this man is. <laughs> and the same is true with God. If I say, God, I just want to be with you. No, no, I don't want to think about any of these saints. Like, I just think the father is so sad if we approach him that way. So I, I, giving Mary honor, remembering her, growing in devotion with her is far from distracting. I always turn around the question and say, you know, honoring Mary isn't just an okay thing to do. It's more like this. Do you want to love God with all your heart? Do you want to give him as much praise as you can? then draw close to Mary and the saints. <laughs> uh, so I hope that the book will help kind of give some of the biblical underpinnings of our beliefs here.
Yeah, that's great. And I think it does. I think it, I think it really does a great job of that. And of course, this is not your first book on Mary. You've, you've written on her many times over the years um, and given talks on her and everything, showing that scriptural basis, not just in the New Testament, but how even the Old Testament can illuminate what we know about her from the New Testament and why she's so important, why she was so important to our Lord, to the apostles, and to Christians down through the centuries. And I think it does a great job of that. And so anyone interested, uh, the book is available at ignatius.com. Uh, there's a link in the comments uh, to go to the ignatius.com uh, website and purchase it. Uh, it can also be found at probably at your local Catholic bookstore and all the, all the usual suspects. So uh, Dr. Sri, thanks so much for coming on. And um, we uh, will uh, talk again soon, I hope. Oh, I hope so. Really good to be with you all. So thanks so much. And if I can ask a little prayer request from everyone before we go, sure, we can pray. So uh, Focus is getting ready to launch their big SEEK conference. And it's one that anyone can participate in all around the country, all around the world. It's going to be a live broadcast event. Uh, and you can go to the Focus website, focus.org to learn more about it. But if you can pray for the you know, it's it's the largest conference we've ever been able to do in the, in the digital way of delivering. But it's not just that. It's going to be live. You know, it's going to be a live broadcast. So I'm traveling to five different cities in the matter of 20, 48 hours. And we're going to be broadcasting from different places. But most of all, if you can pray for the tens of thousands of young people uh, that are they're going to be participating in this just for their conversion, their deepening in their love for our Lord. So uh, we can pray for the young people and for our, uh, the Holy Spirit outpouring in their lives. I greatly appreciate it. That's next weekend. Absolutely. We'll, we'll keep them in our prayers and all, all the great work that you're doing. All right. Thanks so much, Paul. God bless. All right. Thanks. God bless. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, thanks for listening.